it will get ugly in this solar system. Well, yeah, yeah. Earth would basically become like the, well, well how people tend to feel about the, the capital. They think they're so big and so important because they live in the, the hub and New Yorkers get attitude when they go around because people naturally, they assume that you're arrogant and you're full of yourself. And yep. yeah, in Canada, everybody hates Toronto. And, you know, they're, they're so central and think they're so important. And- <laughs> Welcome to What the If. I'm Philip Shane, a documentary filmmaker and erstwhile space traveler, as we have done on many episodes, and today will be no exception. We have a special guest, co-pilot, space captain, perhaps future emperor, Matt Williams. How are you, Matt? I'm good, and thank you for that intro. One one can only hope. (laughs) (laughs) Matt is a, uh, well, you already know this. I don't need to tell you, but I can tell the audience. You are a writer for Universe Today and a website called Interesting Engineering. Mm-hmm. Is that interestingengineering.com? Yes. Interestingengineering.com. What was the latest thing you wrote for them? Ooh, let's see. Uh, well, I just actually just wrote what a space force would look like so yeah the uh basically talking more broadly about the militarization of space and how that's nothing new but you know how it's also something that uh well we are looking into for the future just finished it hasn't gone up yet but i just finished one about space habitats and What's the big deal about those? And that's you know space stations that are big enough to accommodate lots of people, simulate artificial gravity by rotation. Awesome. Thank you. You are also a science fiction author. Yes. A, uh, a, you're working on the third part of the trilogy now called the Formist series. Is it a space opera? Um, sort of. It, it uh it the the goal was to it to be hard science fiction as as much as possible you know given that you're writing about stuff that won't happen for uh, a, a bit but um yeah it, it, there there are elements of space opera too I, I I'm not a hundred percent sure where one begins the other ends you know yeah you can definitely do like uh, was, we had the incredible fortune to have Alistair Reynolds on um, and we also have and Paul McCauley uh, as well. And um, uh, I would absolutely say, for instance, Alistair Reynolds is hard science fiction and space opera. Oh, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. The idea of these what-the-if scenarios, it's kind of inspired by writing science fiction, especially, in particular, hard science fiction. You have an idea, you set out to write about it, but in writing about it, you have to learn a lot of science. Mm-hmm. You might, you know, if it's something new to you. Mm-hmm. Get you to go learn stuff. This is what we're doing this week. What the if we could colonize? Not, I'm, not we could. That's what what, uh, what Yoda would 
not be happy with us just no. saying there is no could <laughs> yes <laughs> there, well, he, he wouldn't he would say uh if uh, there is no if either what the if we are colonizing the solar system right okay we're doing it <laughs> yeah do you think this colonization effort I, I'm guessing there needs to be a catalyst. Mm-hmm. For instance, we, you know, we, we're going to have soon other countries, as well as our, the United States, all going to the moon for yes. research. And, and that's cool. It's a little bit like colonization, but it's not quite mm-hmm. what we think about, right? So w- what yeah. might—do we have any hope in any near future of having something—what would be that thing that— catalyzes a colonization Ooh. well it um it's a good question and well this well th- well this is actually exactly what what I, I i did when i was writing uh my own books the catalyst for me is that and it's, it's something you hear today so it's this this really isn't my opinion with the threat of climate change with the threat of overpopulation and how the two very much fit together, right? It's like by 2100, we're anticipating that there will be upwards of 11 billion people on this planet. And that's that's the more positive scenario, in fact. It, it could be far higher. <laughs> we're going to be having far more mouths to feed and people who need housing, clothing, food, water, and education and employment at a time when the resources and the very systems we depend upon to do that for everyone now, they're going to be shrinking, drying up, and shifting. So there's a lot of people out there who who will say, they will argue this, they'll stake their reputations on it. We are not going to be able to to thrive unless we start going out. And the way to do that is, yes, we need to colonize low Earth orbit. We need to go to the moon again and stay there. And yeah, and if we can, if we can help it, let's let's get over to Mars too. And and you know, why not the asteroid belt? Yes, all those minerals and all that lovely, all those volatile elements. And and while you're doing that, you know, maybe head on over to Venus and Mercury. The resources are so plentiful, and there's so much real estate, right? It's like if you can do that, we would have very we we would be able to fear a lot less the prospect of Earth becoming a not not uninhabitable but not a very nice place to live. <laughs> Hopefully, we are getting closer to the point of getting into space being easier. Yes, yes. You know, if we ever get a space elevator, that'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. or you know, better, cheaper rockets that are, you know, safe, and whatever it takes, right? At that point, also, combined with the sort of need or desire to flee a deteriorating Earth, yeah, is the, just that human wanderlust that yeah. humans seem to have. If I could go to Hertz right now and you know rent a <laughs> a spaceship mm-hmm. i'm going to the moon yeah absolutely if, if, yep. if we could drive the way we do with cars 
we would absolutely be doing that. And then I guess the other thing is building habitation. That seems like a simple problem to solve mm-hmm. to me, habitation. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Like, do we have that now? To We, we could easily, easily, we could build a base. Like, I feel like this... Oh, yeah, yeah. If you take the space station and put it on the ground on the moon, you, you basically have a moon base. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, NASA is currently planning on building the Lunar Gateway, which is an orbiting habitat that will be orbiting around the moon, so in between the moon and Earth. We could theoretically say, forget that. Let's think bigger. NASA and anybody else we can get involved in this, let's launch tons of materials up there build a big, big rotating space station and like 5,000 people could live there. In order to do that, how much are you willing to spend? <laughs> O'Neill himself, when he, he wrote these proposals there back in the uh, uh, 76... But I don't know who he is. Who? That's Gerard O'Neill, physicist and astronomer, I do believe. He proposed this idea as a workshop for students of his, because he was uh, he was a teacher too. The task was: how do we build a space habitat that could accommodate lots of people and be built with today's technology using just then current technology? His students went to work on it, and what emerged out of that was the idea of a rotating cylinder in space made using materials harvested from asteroids and the moon. You can get thousands of people in there, and you speed up the rotation. And the physics, it all worked. It's like, yeah, you could simulate Earth gravity in there. It's the exact same feeling. They're they're feeling 9.8 meters per second squared of gravity, and so they don't have to worry about muscle loss and bone density loss, and, and they can have babies. Babies that don't float away. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because we, we, we have no idea what it would be like to have babies in space right now. It's like, would the lower gravity affect their development? Would they be born with all kinds of problems? I urge people to Google him, Gerard O'Neill, Space Station, and look at these incredible drawings. They're very fanciful, mm-hmm. but beautifully utopian. Mm-hmm lawns and houses it's very suburban in a way yeah. which it and but look closely you might even i don't know how big they are you can zoom in on it really close and look at the people they're hilarious the fashion is hilarious very it's very logan's run yes what one of the um best visualizations i've seen is in the movie interstellar oh yeah seeing it on the big screen helps you're looking at land that goes away from you, and as it goes away from you, instead of curving downward, as it does on the Earth, curves upward, right? And then goes over your head, which is just yeah. <laughs> bizarre. bizarre. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's some people that are going to want to stay put. But where we are, we are a particular unit, a squad, a, 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 maybe a village, traveling village, they're like, we want to move, we got to keep moving. And so... I could imagine these space stations also basically becoming cruise ships, or right, like you yeah. might see in, in many, many, many science fiction movies, spinning with gravity, but they go between the planets. And so the moon, I'm guessing, becomes the first colony, but Mars 
it's is like a whole different like Mars feels like the first real colony. Where would we go after Mars? Oof. The asteroid belt is is definitely what I've heard. One one of the big benefits of going to Mars and. I'm not sure NASA has said this, but I'm sure they're thinking it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it has been said uh, by a couple people that have consulted on the subject there, just in terms of uh, studies or essays, is that one of the big, big benefits of having um, infrastructure on and around Mars, just like we're hoping to do with the moon, right? It's like the, the lunar infrastructure helps us get to Mars, and uh, that Martian infrastructure will help us get to the asteroid belt. And there was no question about that. It's like, we want to get to the asteroid belt so we can mine and just yank out all the lovely, lovely, um, there, there's just so such abundant minerals there and ices, and we're going to need those. Uh, no matter what we do, we're probably going to need those resources. So, And anything that's already in space, certainly on a low gravity, very low gravity situation you might get it on an asteroid, is a hell of a lot easier than having to launch it from the Earth and even from the Moon, you know it's it's there for the taking. It's just floating. I must say I'm grateful for the um, the satellites we have now that are that do visit asteroids. We sort of see more and more missions like that. You really get a feeling of what it would be like to be there, uh, especially from the the Hayabusa the Hayabusa two, the current Japanese mission, right? They they have a there's like a gif somebody made or they made of like it bouncing off or it uh, what is it it impacts the surface and bounces off and then all these pebbles go flying. The funny thing is about those pictures is that the scale. If you actually take a moment and then say, well, how big are these things? And you read the little fine print about the scale. Turns out that image you're actually looking at is like some centimeters across. Yeah, <laughs> and yet it looks like you know, uh, gigantic, gigantic. So, would you would you like to live on an asteroid? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> never. <laughs> Although I would love to visit one, and um, yeah, if you could visit an asteroid or a comet that is you know hurling around and and look up and see Earth, oh, that that'd be so amazing. It'd be a challenge, but. Give me a thought here. I think daredevils in the future would definitely, you know, adventure tourism. <laughs> it's like, it's like you know, sign this waiver first, obviously, and well, and all these other waivers, and then hop aboard this ship that is going to just blast you off and rendezvous with, with an asteroid or a comet, and a comet, yeah, yeah, and then we're gonna. S- we're going to set down and you're going to, you know, jump around in the low gravity and, and have a look. And if you don't die <laughs> after a few hours or so, um, then, yeah, get on back and, and come home and, and of course, brag about it on social media. Tweet Instagram for yeah. space. Yeah. I have an idea for a sport on an asteroid, like a very low gravity asteroid. A foot race. Mm-hmm. Where you would go, you would want to go as fast as you can to beat the other runners, but you can't go so fast that you fly off the asteroid. Oh, so yeah. this could be a fun. 
<laughs> yeah. awkward, awkward race. How big is the colony that you explore in your trilogy? By the tail end of the 23rd century, we basically established colonies on every planet and major moon from Mercury to, to Uranus. Some very adventurous, extremely, uh, you know, uh, hyper-advanced humans have actually gone further, but not a lot of people are out there, right? <laughs> Those who went beyond there have pretty much sacrificed their humanity and, and become true explorers. Any, any place where humans could be settled at this point, they were. So major asteroids, Mars for sure, uh, Phobos and Deimos, floating cities around Venus, a limited sort of settlement in the polar regions of Mercury, the moon, the moon for sure, and the surface of Mars. And uh, they do have space elevators at this point in time. Their asteroids are colonized, Ceres is colonized, Vesta. The, the series invested two of the the two largest asteroids. Yes, yeah. By the way, we were talking about series, and that woke up the lady who lives in my iPhone. Ah, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hi, Siri. Sorry. The first disaster on the asteroid series, the dwarf planet series, is going to be the series in the phones. Waking up and becoming sentient, I think, because people keep seeing series over and over again. It's going to be a problem. They gotta, they gotta buy Alexa or some other <laughs> AI because it's too confusing. Yes. This is how Jeff Bezos will beat out Tim Cook in space. Yeah, <laughs> I do love this idea of inhabiting every place that could be inhabited because on the Earth, that's pretty much what's happened. People have gone and live and have lived for a very long time in some of the most hostile environments, almost every hostile environment. They found a way to live and, you know, stick it out and keep going. So, I, for sure, yeah, I could see that happening in space. Mm -hmm. Is it a problem for these people to be so far apart from each other? Hmm. Or what, what's the biggest challenge for the society this this colonized solar system society well trans transport would be and it's like if you can create self-sustaining and that, that's definitely the name of the game right it's like as much as possible you want self-sustaining in situ resource utilization uh, is is sort of the buzzword it's it's like uh, it's like synergy <laughs> is to the business world. <laughs> yeah, ISRU is to uh, astronomy and and, uh, and space exploration. So much so, so that there's an acronym. Yes. <laughs> I -S, yeah. What is it? I-S? I-S-R-U. Yeah. I-S-R-U. In situ resource. Utilization. Utilization. Which means? Which means using the local resources to see to your needs. So right now, NASA is looking at... Well, NASA, the European Space Agency, well, every every uh, space agency in the world there that is uh, that has plans to build a base on the moon and build a base on Mars, they'll say, well, we need 3D printers and we need this method because what we want to do is take the local soil, 
get it into this 3D printer and either mix it with a bonding agent or just blast it with uh, microwaves so that you can then print out a nice uh, sludge of concrete or like a molten ceramic. And that that's your walls. Is there ice and water there? Great, because that's where your water's coming from. <laughs> We'll ship you what we can, but for the love of God, you know, learn learn to learn to be self-reliant there, grow your own food. It's like if you can do that, then you can build a colony just about anywhere. The cool thing about that is I just have an image of like if you travel, you know, you go to other countries or travel a bit around our planet, Earth, and you go to places where it everything has been built out of the local limestone or what or you know this sort of sandstone the different uh, the different kinds of land that people live in and they use that to build their cities or villages you could see how right every the ones that are built in the sahara are very different than the ones that are built in uh, the tundra uh so the different planets would have very different look different kinds of architecture oh yeah yeah well, and yeah, and in fact, if we're if they're going to do that on any of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, they won't be using like sand or regolith at all. They'll be using ice. Ah, yeah, because ice there it's it is so cold out there that the water will freeze to the point where it's as hard as granite, and it's like that's that's a perfect building material. You know, put it up. If we're as long as we're not expecting any sudden temperature changes, <laughs> that's good. You know, you may want to insulate the whole thing there in order to make sure that, well, you know, we're going to warm it up inside. So let's, uh, you know, let, let's let's put a wall of uh, spray rock in in there. So it's an igloo, kind of. Yeah, but without the softness of snow to 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 mold it. Yeah, that that's interesting. Now, the floating bases on gas planets or venus is, is there imaginable that we could be using the land of venus to service a, a floating city in any way not not so much the land it's like yeah it's it's conceivable right it's like if you want to build a floating platform above the clouds of Venus there where it's going to be naturally cushioned by that incredibly dense cloud cover and you had some kind of uh, you know sky bucket that you you know just extend down through the atmosphere scoop up dirt from the ground pull it up and you could do it it's just that the string itself is going to have to be made out of something as strong and heat resistant as titanium and the bucket too and does sulfuric acid melt it well then it's no good okay because the pressure is going to be so intense, so that bucket better have a way to stay uncrushed. <laughs> and at that point, it's like, wait, why are we doing this? Uh, <laughs> right, and that, that's the situation where it actually is easier, we can imagine, to bring the materials in from above, as opposed to from below in, in some of these places. What else is a, a challenge? It's just so vast. I'm trying to get a feel of this colony. Let's say, imagine we live in it, right? All right, we're, we're part of it. It's actually, it seems like it would be like living in the southwest of the U.S. And I'm guessing, you know, Canada's the same way. You have a city, and then it's just, 
enormous distances in between. So everything is very scattered. We would never really get beyond that. I mean, I guess wherever you lived could become a megalopolis. Mars could be become Corcassant or something. But uh, it's still a vast emptiness. What is the biggest threat to this colony? No matter how sufficient, self-sufficient these places are, transport is going to be the biggest challenge. Because if there's something wrong out there, it's like the colonists are not getting along or there's uh, there's a disease outbreak. The challenge is getting out there to help, right? We're, we're sending a medical ship. Obviously, you know, it's like the fact that you guys can't deal with it yourself means there's probably uh, some serious unknowns going on. We're not going to likely have any kind of colonies be anywhere beyond the Earth-Moon system until we have like nuclear thermal rockets or or something really, really impressive, like you know, like really great energy density. One of the beauty parts is we know how to do that right now. It's like we actually did the mock-ups and then we built a NASA built a nuclear reactor uh, or a um, a nuclear engine at one time. They never tested it to but not not in space certainly, and uh, they didn't hook it up to any. Uh, Fusion supplies, to my knowledge. Who I didn't know about that. What would? Oh well, yeah, the well. If you look up uh, Nerva, N E R V A, that's that's the design, and it's a solid nuclear rocket. I don't know how far they got with testing, but but they did build it, and as far as I know, it worked just fine. It's just they never got a chance to put it on a spacecraft and send it up, and you know, and it's it was like so much of the space age that. The research was just, it was going in all directions. They were coming up with so many ideas, and some of which were getting funding, some of which weren't. And then, of course, the end of the space race came around, and then all these things were on the chopping block. It's like, can't afford it, can't afford it, can't afford it. Bye, 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 bye. This is an old idea, but most of the ideas we have right now for getting out there are old. And But we know that, uh, with some exceptions, we all know, we know that they all work. It's just a matter of, can we fund them? I'm going to fast forward. Every inch of the solar system that can be populated is populated. What is going to happen? That is a very good question. And it, it does depend on a bunch of things. Um, and if if I could shamelessly, you know, go back to what I wrote about there, you actually you you said this earlier there. What would be the catalyst for people going out there? And I thought, well, initially, yeah, climate change. But if we're lucky, then you know the ridiculously advancing state of technology is, as we're seeing it today, and the fact that we have to. You know, so many billions of people living mostly in major cities all across the planet. That's going to spur on a lot of innovation because it's like, well, we have to or we're going to die. So they they end up by 2100 and after we we may actually start to see things getting better around the world. And that that's actually there's there's predictions. There's data that says that. 
if the climate crisis then passes, where by 2100 we're thinking, well, you know, there's still all kinds of problems, but they're getting better now. You know, the, the whole thing's going to even itself out. What then? And I figured, well, all that technological change, right? Humanity goes through that massive boom of information and learning and augmentations. If the technological singularity, as it's called, happens, people are probably going to start leaving to get away from that. Leaving Earth. They'll probably go to Mars because life is simpler there. It's 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 harder and it's simpler. Go to the moon, yeah. It's like you're you're trying to get away from the fact that the internet is now, it's everywhere in everyone's lives and it's very invasive, right? It's you, you don't have Big Brother government as much as you have your neighbors and everybody around the world knowing everything you do at every single moment, yeah. And if you can't keep up with the 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 chain the, the pace of change which i mean people have such a hard time now what's it going to be like in 50 years in that respect it's like yeah people moving away from the that kind of lifestyle they ended up creating a whole new way of life whole new dynamics off world and and that that leads to political divisions of sorts right whole new ways of thinking because they're yeah they're it's free kind of, kind of, yeah, kind of yeah. like a gap between the developed world and the less developed world. People with more advancement, more power, they they tend to see those who are not as advanced as you know, lesser. You know, and 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 uh, if we're taking from them in the form of yeah, using their resources there to fuel our lifestyle, well, that's fine. That's just business. But. Um, Another way that this could happen there that has nothing to do with, with what I've been writing about is that if we, assuming that people go out there and they're, they're, isn't, they're not driven by highly politicized kind of forces there, there is the likelihood that they're going to start forming their own identities, their own cultures. They're going to be different than Earthborn, and that could cause problems. <laughs> it, it could cause tensions and even warfare. Just living in a different different gravity, yeah, different from Earth, whether it's more or less, you begin to develop words in your language for it. That's a tiny start, but like eventually whole new ways of thinking because you live in this different place and because just the way you live is very, very different. You don't want that disturbed. And for sure, there's always going to be people coming by <laughs> who want to change it. Yeah. Or eventually want to colonize the colonies. Yeah. Or they're, yeah, and, and tourists too. And yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, well, some very wonderful uh, Robert uh, Heinlein comes to mind there, the Moon is Zahar's mistress. It's really quite wonderful. A population of people, they call themselves loonies. They've been on the moon for several generations, and they started out as a penal colony, but now they are their population apart, and they want to be independent. You know, as you can imagine, it's like, well, Earth's never going to say yes to that. So, how, what do we do? How do we how do we convince them? And now, imagine a a a people Martians, true Martians. And they, too, it's like, well, every two years we get a spaceship from Earth because uh, unless we figured out a, a, 
foolproof, fast, and easy way to get there. It's like, yeah, we, we wait till the planets align. We, we don't even see anybody from Earth uh, except for every two years. We rely on ourselves, but they, they take from us. And that, that reminds me of Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars. Yeah, it's yeah, like, we're, yeah. we're not them anymore. They're not us. And they don't, they don't get us because they're not here. And all it takes is like even, even you know, generations. Mm-hmm. So, if, yeah. you know, if you're talking about uh, ships arriving every two years, you know, um, that's a limited number of times you experience that even in your own lifetime and the new generations come up. If you're you're a native, like you were talking about, real Martians, so you grew up on Mars, that ship, the people that come off that ship are always going to seem like aliens, yeah, to you. And and yeah, and of course, people will look different too, because it's like, oh, those native Martians there, they're they're weird, they're they're tall and kind of lanky, and they, you know, living with radiation shielding all your life there. You imagine they probably don't tan well, <laughs> they don't they don't have natural tan skin complexions there. The Expanse series, they, they did this too. Yeah. People who are the belters. They're taller. Yep. They're tall, skinny, and there are the cultural differences too, which they covered at, at a certain point. It's like, if you grew up in any of these places there, seeing the sky above you is scary. It's like it's going to fall and crush you, but it also takes your breath away, and, and looking at oceans takes your breath away. And but walking around in that higher gravity sure is uncomfortable. As as time goes by on Earth, where you had colonization and and people migration and colonization, you know, there's a sense of where we're sort of all merging, cultures are merging, and people are, you know, groups, uh, you know, ethnic groups, races that were completely isolated, let's say, in certain parts of the world, are now mingling and living together and uh, having families and growing and growing. And so, sort of merging, melding, you know, or melting pot, as we say in the United States. Whereas by going out into the solar system, you again begin to restart these evolution, or you, you, it's all, that phase of evolution that might have existed way back in the at the time when people were born in Africa and then started to travel and then became different as they lived in all the, the different parts of the world. And so, the, if we don't conquer our silly and tragic tribal <laughs> ways of thinking and prejudices, it will get ugly in this colony, in, in this system of a solar system. Well, yeah, yeah. Earth would basically become like the, uh, well, how people tend to feel about the, the capital, right? Or the biggest city on, on the block there, right? Just, we don't like them. They, <laughs> yeah, those people, they think they're so big and so important because they live in the, the hub. And I mean, I, I'm sure New Yorkers hear this all the time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we have that exact same prejudice here in Canada, you know, watching American TV, you hear it all the time there. It's like, yes, so apparently <laughs> New Yorkers get attitude when they go around because people naturally, they assume that you're arrogant and you're full of yourself and yep. and whatever. And they, they like to mock the fact that it takes so much to sustain that city. And, and it's like, yeah, in Canada, people have the exact same feeling about Toronto. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, it's like everybody hates Toronto. It's like, well, it's not like they did anything to us. It's just, you know, they're they're so 
center central and think they're so important. And <laughs> I'm guessing you, you know about this, but for instance, when I was tra- when I graduated college and then went traveling through Europe, mm-hmm. Reagan was president and America was ugly. And, and <laughs> <laughs> things look even different now, but let's say there was a sense that um, Americans were really, there was a, the ugly American was a prejudice, you know, that was out there. And so as we went around, um, I didn't do this personally, but some Americans would put a Canadian flag on their back. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we hear about that all the time here in Kennedy. Yeah. It, and then it, it is kind of, you know, a smug thing. It's like, yeah, but uh, I don't know. Personally, I would say, yeah, go ahead, do it, man, you know. The people on Venus are going to be like, look, I'm I'm Venusian, man. I'm chill. I think the Venusians are going to be very chill. People <laughs> yeah. With a name like Venus, even though the living environment is a little st- odd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mercury, they're going to be very hot-blooded, literally. Probably. And that 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 actually was the the funny story. That that's how this whole how I started writing these ideas. That's how it all came about. There I was thinking about Mercury and how people would live there. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. And we were sort of I, I had just written an article about Mercury's sort of particular um, quirks, a, sort of a general knowledge. Uh, what what's Mercury like? What's it got going on, and so forth. And after thinking about how it how it orbits, how it rotates, the, the parts on the planet that are actually permanently cool, and and how the hot side is blazing hot, the cold side is freezing cold, but there's all these minerals and energy, and Arthur C. Clarke's written about people going there, becoming Hermians. So we started talking about this. How could people actually live there? Because it, it would be doable. It's just a, a matter of being creative. And before long, I... He made a very good point, which was that good luck convincing anybody to move there. <laughs> I would want to live on Mercury. I certainly would want to visit it. I think it'd be kind of amazing to be that close to the sun. Was there anything in your re- as you've researched or thought about it's, it's sort of a, a civilization that spans the solar system? Were there other surprises that kind of came to you? Well, yeah. The the fact that uh, a lot of moons that are in the outer solar system have, or, or are thought to have, interior oceans. Since since I was a kid, well, teenager, I, I remember learning that Europa, that moon has an interior ocean, and oh my god, there could be life there. And then, you know, subsequent learning, um, mainly since I started working for universe today, though, I was like, so wait a minute. So Ganymede as well, maybe Callisto and all these moons of Saturn's here. You've got what uh, Titan Enceladus for sure. We saw the water coming out of it. Dion. And then a couple around your, uh, around uh, Uranus, uh, too. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Triton around Neptune is considered a good, good candidate. Ever since the New Horizons mission, people were thinking uh, Pluto could too. And it's it's about tidal heat in the interior, yes, but there's also the possibility of these places are rich with ammonia, and that makes water much harder to freeze, and there's radioactive decay in there. So these places could all have oceans in their interior. Only some of them would be warm enough where life as we know it could exist, but... You know, we're we're not talking about life as we know it. We're talking about whole new life. So, 
you know, <laughs> anything's possible. If people go out there to live, that, that's got to have some kind of effect on their their mentality. Yeah, especially if they're, you know, we're talking about multicellular or, yeah. or plants, yeah, and, and fish or you yep. know, some kind of uh, sea creatures. Yeah, yeah, that be and, and it, it strikes me that, and we can leave it here. I think that some of the prize. The, the true jewels, in a way, that get traded around the system are going to be the life, if that was the case, life that comes from these other planets. That's truly something you would never get anywhere else. Basically, sushi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. People will pay through the nose to have a, a, Euro, a European kipper. <laughs> or, 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 yeah. <laughs> Ah, the, see that—that's a good pun, by the way, because there's the Europa Clipper. <laughs> oh, that's oh my god! <laughs> the Europa Clipper mission, and they will be eating. They—they they will be farming. Yep. <laughs> Europa Kippers. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> mm, delicious. Time for brunch. Yeah, time for brunch. Well, thank you for this. This was impressive. Mega engineering. That would be yeah. interesting engineering too. Oh well, yeah. And if if ever you want to talk about mega structures or stuff like that, oh, I love mega structures. That was the, the I believe that was the very first article I wrote for Interesting Engineering because that was heavy on my mind at the time. And with all the speculation in recent years about Tabby Star, I, I pray that they never figure out what's around Tabby Star because. As long as they can't rule, as long as they can't say, oh, it's definitely this natural cause, we can continue to pretend that it's aliens. <laughs> a Dyson sphere, a gigantic yes. sphere around the planet. Oh, I love, yes. Okay. You heard it here. The next time <laughs> we're going to do another show where oh, we do mega, anything with mega in front of it, I'm in, I'm in for. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm good for that. Larger than life aliens. Oh, there's a wonderful quote from Babylon 5. It is an, an early episode, and the character Shakar. Did you watch the show? Yeah, a little bit. A little yeah, bit, he, yeah, he's he's the they, they have like the orange face. He's an alien, basically. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He he uses an ant to as a as a metaphor to explain to this other woman what she saw out on a mission there because she sees a huge spacecraft like thing, but it doesn't look like a, a spacecraft a human being would recognize. It looks organic, and it's. So overwhelming and gigantic, and he explains to her, like, I'm, I'm picking up this ant here. When I put it back on the flower where I found it, and it asked its friends, what was that? What do you think they would say? And I thought, oh, my God, that's brilliant. Yeah, because isn't that the, that's the thing with Babylon 5. Their ships are living creatures. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they talk about aliens that are, that are civilizations that have been around for billions of years. And it's like, can you even imagine how advanced they'd be? They would seem like gods to us, and that's probably going to work in their favor. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Matt Williams, writer of Universe Today and Interesting Engineering, and the author of the Formist series. When does the third book come out? Um, well, I'm aiming for the end. Of, I'm aiming to complete it uh, by the end of the summer, uh, but it would be in the fall, according to what uh, my publisher and I were just talking about earlier today. So, yeah, this cool. fall. Coming up. Yeah, yeah. and a, a little clue here, the the, the term formist, it, it, each of these series as we've planned them are based around a certain faction in the future universe. 
And the Formists, they take their name from the fact that they are big enthusiasts of terraforming. Ah, uh-huh. And that's something they want to do, and, and they want to do it on Mars, they want to do it on Venus, and they won't be stopped. <laughs> or they won't be talked out of it. <laughs> do they go to terraform places that where there are people already there? <laughs> well, in, well, let's just say, you know, uh, people today, and it was something I, I had to use, people today talk about how Mars and Venus, if we were to go there and test out terraforming techniques, that would be a great research uh, study for testing out those those kinds of uh, geolo- ecological engineering and uh, here at home, because we may not the earth may not uh, really last if we don't do that so it's like okay so this is interesting using other worlds to test the techniques that you're going to try at home to get all the bugs out yeah what if people are already there <laughs> we're, we're pretty confident no one lives on mars right now <laughs> supremely confident nobody lives on mercury right now <laughs> but somebody pops their head up <laughs> yeah what are you doing <laughs> yeah oh we're just putting in a golf course yeah, nothing. <laughs> you didn't see that. You didn't see that. <laughs> Wonderful having you, and uh, so we'll we will look for your any any. Are, are, I'm guessing the book is consuming your time, or are you also writing mag- uh, uh, these uh, universe today and interesting engineering? Uh, yeah, I'm, I've been I've been trying to balance the three, and uh, amazing. It's not easy. <laughs> thank, you, thank you. But uh, yeah, that, that's part of why the third book has been taking so long. But um, yeah. If uh, people look for me on university, they'll find regular um, contributions there. I, I write longer articles for interesting engineering, so they are rarer. Um, but yeah, but they cover broad topics, so they, they have to be rare. <laughs> Where can people find you if they want to? Well, my, my books are on Amazon. They're listed on Amazon. Uh, Matthew Williams, uh, if you type in the Formist series, it'll come up exactly like it sounds and i have a website called stories by williams com. and what's your uh, twitter handle story by will story by will at story by will yeah <laughs> look them up great stuff we love your work here in, in the what, what the if planet <laughs> well thank you <laughs> thank you for taking Any- us on this journey hey. if you're listening and you want to hear some of the other shows we sort of threw out uh, mentions of on our website whattheif.com you can hear all our episodes in fact I think you are like a hundred episode 109 something like that mm-hmm. so the if grows the if the colonization of the if whatever that means <laughs> has grown uh, whattheif.com and Matt you mm-hmm. are going to receive Ingratitude, a finger puppet of a great scientist or perhaps science fiction character. <laughs> okay. And I look forward to having you in the near future talking about mega structures. No. And then yes. I'll have to get you a mega puppet. <laughs> <laughs> and if, if you want to talk about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. That's what I want to write about next. <laughs> actually finding them in that genre first contact what is your favorite or are your favorites examples 
well, uh, given that we were talking about him, Alistair Reynolds, I, um, he's he's one of a few, though, because, I mean, you know, it's like asking which of your children you love most and or, or least. I'm, <laughs> hard to pick one. His whole concept of the inhibitors, I thought, was very was was genius. And of course, yes, Arthur C. Clarke and, and, and the whole the, the monoliths was mind bending, yes. <laughs> Babylon 5 for their whole first one's concept, the, the ancient aliens. That blew my mind at the time. Good choices, good choices. And add Matthew Williams books to that collection of your, as you're building your science fiction <laughs> library, your hard SF library. Thank you, Matt. And now, you, you I, I don't know if you've heard the show before, but at the end, we have a ritual Okay. where when we think about, see, we have no idea what we're doing next week. Who does, really? Yep. <laughs> but we, we can't help but look in awe and terror at all the possibilities. And so we scream the name of the show very slowly. Okay. Okay. Yep. What the is?